Hello friends, this is Lisa Louise Cook. In this bonus episode of the Genealogy Gems podcast, it's my honor to bring to you the words and the music of our ancestors. This Independence Day, I invite you to take a few moments to gather the family around and listen to just a few of the inspiring speeches and sounds of times gone by. And they are as applicable today as when they were first broadcast. This episode is dedicated to the men and women serving in the United States military. We owe you so much. God bless America. Patrick Henry, born in Virginia in 1736, died in 1799. He began life as a farmer, made a failure, and then took up the profession of law, in which for a time he achieved only moderate success. His rare gifts as an orator, however, attracted attention, and in 1765, he was elected a member of the Virginia legislature, or House of Burgesses, as it was then called. He astonished all by his powerful eloquence in opposing the Stamp Act, and he was among the foremost in defying the tyrannical steps of King George III and his Parliament. It was on March the 23rd, 1775, that losing patience with the timidity of his associates, he swept the Second Revolutionary Convention of Virginia off its feet by his magnificent oratory. The historical give me liberty or give me death speech was delivered in the old church in Richmond. And among the auditors who were held spellbound by the impassioned appeal was young Thomas Jefferson, who often referred to it with admiration in after years. In vain, after these things, may we indulge the fond hope of peace and reconciliation. There is no longer any room for hope. If we wish to be free, we must fight. I repeat it, sir, we must fight. An appeal to arms and to the God of battles is all that is left us. They tell us, sir, that we are weak, unable to cope with so formidable an adversary. But when shall we be stronger? Will it be the next week or the next year? Will it be when we are totally disarmed and when a British guard shall be stationed in every house? Shall we gather strength by irresolution and inaction? Shall we acquire the means of effectual resistance by lying supinely on our backs and hugging the delusive phantom of hope until our enemies shall have found us hand and foot? Sir, we are not weak if we make a proper use of those means which the God of nature has placed in our power. Three millions of people armed in the holy cause of liberty and in such a country as that which we possess are invincible against any force which our enemy can send against us. Besides, sir, we shall not fight our battles alone. There is a just God who presides over the destinies of nations and who will raise up friends to fight our battles for us. A battle, sir, is not to the strong alone. It is to the vigilant, the active, the brave. Besides, sir, we have no election. If we were base enough to desire it, it is now too late to retire from the contest. There is no retreat but in submission and slavery. Our chains are forged. 
Their clanking may be heard on the plains of Boston. The war is inevitable, and let it come. I repeat it, sir, let it come. It is in vain, sir, to extenuate the matter. Gentlemen may cry peace, peace, but there is no peace. The war is actually begun. The next gale that sweeps from the north will bring to our ears the clash of resounding arms. Our brethren are already in the field. Why stand we here idle? What is it that gentlemen wish? What would they have? Is life so dear or peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery? Or bid it almighty God. I know not what course others may take, but as for me, give me liberty or give me death.
microphone. He wears his full dress uniform. His sword flaps against the side of his leg as he walks. General Washington, are you going to fight for New York? It is a difficult question. Frankly, I haven't made up my mind. If you elect to fight General Washington, do you think you will be able to defend New York successfully? I will do my best, and God willing, we shall be successful. In any event, I would like to say to all the people, do not yield to panic. General, in view of the current situation, do you think the Declaration of Independence should be passed at this time? That must be decided by the Congress in Philadelphia. Thank you, General Washington. Commander-in-Chief is walking away across the field now, his shoulders slightly bent, his jaw thrust forward in the manner of a man who bears an enormous responsibility for which he is ill-prepared. This is Bud Collier in New York. I return you now to the Continental Congress in Philadelphia. This is John Daly at the Continental Congress in Philadelphia. This is the long-awaited climax of the debate on the Declaration of Independence. The Congress has reconvened, and because Mr. Dickinson asked to speak against the Declaration, Mr. Adams has also requested the floor. By agreement, the vote will take place when the two speakers have finished. Also, by agreement, before the session began, Mr. Adams is speaking first. He's exerting his utmost efforts to keep the votes pledged to independence from voting to Mr. Dickinson. Will he succeed? Well, we'll only know when the vote is taken. And now let's listen to Mr. Adams. By proclaiming a declaration of independence, gentlemen, this Congress will be giving official recognition to a fact which already exists, namely that these colonies are actually, in fact, independent of England. Yet, some great brains counsel us to wait, to exercise caution. Do these cautious gentlemen plead for a postponement of a declaration of independence so that their Tory friends may have time to hatch plots and conspiracies against us? Gentlemen, to delay is to play into the hands of the enemy, defeating the cause for which so much blood has already been shed. There must be no further delay. The people are ready. The people wait for the Congress to lead them. The hour has struck. The Congress must proceed now to a vote, an affirmative vote, on the Declaration of Independence. <laughs> Mr. Adams has left the rostrum. Mr. Dickinson is coming up to speak. Dickinson's face is pale. His fists are clenched. He's clearly marshalling all of his strength for a supreme effort of oratory. He's waiting now for the Congress to come to order. Mr. Dickinson. Mr. President, I accuse my opponents of cynicism. They do not, they cannot believe that these colonies will be able to endure as independent states. Their true goal is not independence. They exploit indignation against the mother country to further their own personal fortunes. Mr. President, my opponents make their appeal to the emotions. I make my appeal to intelligence and logic. 
Mr. President, British troops are on Staten Island in overwhelming force. They are about to attack New York. General Washington's task will be difficult at best, but a declaration of independence now will serve only to divide the people of New York and make the defense of that city hopeless. Pass the declaration and you will set brother against brother, father against son. The colonies will become not only the scene of warfare with a mother country, but civil war as well. And in the bloody, senseless, fratricidal struggle, there is no possibility of success. Proclaim independence this evening, gentlemen, and you gain nothing. You merely invite the whirlwind of destruction. I urge you to vote against it. I beg, I plead, I beseech you, vote against, against independence. Mr. Dickinson's plea has been received without applause. The delegates are calling the question, and there seems to be no objection. Oh, but wait a minute. Several of the delegates have risen. However, they're not going to ask for the floor. These delegates are leaving the hall. Four, five, there go three more. Others are leaving also, and I can recognize some of them as men who have been openly undecided. Apparently, they're unwilling to vote, caught on the horns of a dilemma, swayed, no doubt, both by Mr. Adams and Mr. Dickinson. This is a great, a fearful moment of decision. Some of these men are apparently not capable of facing up to it. President Hancock. Embodying the Declaration of Independence. The vote will be by colonies, each colony voting as a unit. A majority will decide. The club will call the roll. Twelve votes will be cast. New York has decided to abstain. Thus, seven votes will carry the issue. New Hampshire, Mr. Josiah Bartlett. New Hampshire votes unanimously for independence. Massachusetts, Mr. John Adams. The Patriots of Massachusetts vote unanimously for independence. Rhode Island, Mr. William Ellery. Independence. Connecticut, Mr. Roger Sherman. Independence, unanimous. New Jersey, the Reverend Dr. Witherspoon. Mr. President, in my judgment, the country is not only ripe for independence, but is in danger of becoming rotten for want of it. New Jersey votes unanimously for independence. Pennsylvania, Mr. Benjamin Franklin. The majority of the delegation from Pennsylvania votes for separation from England, so help us God. Delaware, Mr. Caesar Rodney. Delaware votes unanimously for independence. The Declaration of Independence is passed. Delaware has Mr. cast Thomas the deciding Stone. vote. There is no reaction from the delegates, and the voting continues. It will very probably be unanimous by colonies. Many of the individual delegates are shaking their heads. However, no matter what may be said against the declaration, this document is impressive. It reads well. It begins, when in the course of human events, change is necessary, and then continues, and I quote, we hold these truths to be self-evident. 
that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. July 4th, 1776. John Dickinson loses his fight to block the Declaration of Independence, and the 13 colonies go forward to establish the United States of America. Of the noonday sun, 
so no words can increase the glory of the immortal Washington. First in war, first in peace, first in the hearts of his countrymen. His fame will shine with undiminished splendor through all the coming ages. Under the smiles of beneficent heaven, he was the creator and savior of the greatest nation in the history of the world. Ah, if there had been such an instrument as this in the days that tried men's souls, to record the words as they fell from the lips of the peerless leader of our army in the revolution, our first and foremost president, and the unequaled statesman, with what bated breath and awed hearts, we should accept the treasures from that storehouse of exalted patriotism and matchless wisdom. But since that cannot be, let us ponder upon the closing sentences of his farewell, when bowed by the burden of years, he laid aside the robes of office, and like the humblest citizen of the young republic, wended his way to his beloved Mount Vernon, soon to sink into the tomb, amid the grief of his countrymen and the reverent admiration of the civilized world. In offering to you, my countrymen, these counsels of an old and affectionate friend, I dare not hope they will make the strong and lasting impression I could wish, that they will control the usual current of the passions or prevent our nation from running the course which has hitherto marked the destiny of nations. But if I may even flatter myself that they may be productive of some partial benefit, some occasional good, that they may now and then recur to moderate the fury of party spirit, to warn against the mischiefs of foreign intrigue, to guard against the impostures of pretended patriotism. This hope will be a full recompense for the solicitude for your welfare by which they have been dictated. Though in reviewing the incidents of my administration, I am unconscious of intentional error, I am nevertheless too sensible of my defects not to think it probable that I may have committed many errors. Whatever they may be, I fervently beseech the Almighty to avert or mitigate the evils to which they may tend. I shall also carry with me the hope that my country will never cease to view them with indulgence, and that after 45 years of my life dedicated to its service with an upright zeal, the faults of incompetent abilities will be consigned to oblivion, as myself must soon be to the mansions of rest. Relying on its kindness in this, as in other things, and actuated by that fervent love toward it, which is so natural to a man who views in it the native soil of himself and his progenitors for several generations, I anticipate with pleasing expectation that retreat in which I promise myself to realize without alloy the sweet enjoyment of partaking in the midst of my fellow citizens the benign influence of good laws under a free government, the ever-favorite object of my heart, and the happy reward, as I trust, of our mutual cares, labors, and dangers. 
If Washington Should Come to Life, sung by Billy Murray, Edison Records. If Washington should come to life and see how matters stand, a smile from Georgie's lips would surely fall. Instead of all the wasted fields and plains and barren lands, he'd find the greatest country of them all. He'd find he's not neglected, that his memory rends the air. His monuments erected, he would see most everywhere. He'd find a mighty nation of men who do and dare. He'd find he's still the daddy of them all. He'd marvel at the changes as he'd take a look around. At motor cars, he'd surely stop and stare. I wonder what he'd think of all these railroads underground and elevated trains up in the air. The kinetoscope would faze him when he'd see the pictures walk. The phonograph would date him when the thing began to talk. The crush and shove amaze him if he ever saw New York with its wondrous big skyscrapers all around. I wonder what he'd think of Mr. Morgan and how he'd like political machines. I wonder if he'd read what Thomas Lawson is writing for the monthly magazines. I wonder how he'd take to Teddy Roosevelt. I'd like to hear exactly what he'd say. I wonder if he'd try to never tell a lie if Washington should come to life today.
March, played by the Edison Military Band. On the 4th of July in 1941, Roosevelt repeats the words of the Declaration of Independence, which he finds totally appropriate to the current situation. In 1776, on the fourth day of July, the representatives of the several states in Congress assembled, declaring our independence, asserted that a decent respect for the opinion of mankind required that they should declare the reasons for their action. In this new crisis, we have a like duty. In the past few years, a new resistance in the form of several new practices of tyranny has been making such headway that the fundamentals of 1776 are being struck down abroad and definitely they are threatened here. Yet, all of us who lie awake at night, all of us who study and study again, know full well that in these days we cannot save freedom with pitchforks and muskets alone after a dictator combination has gained control of the rest of the world. That is why we are engaged in a serious, in a mighty, in a unified action in the cause of the defense of the hemisphere and the freedom of the seas. We need not the loyalty and unity alone. We need speed and efficiency and toil. And so it is that when we repeat the great pledge to our country and to our flag, it must be our deep conviction 
that we pledge as well our work, our will, and if it be necessary, our very lives. Oh!